Hello, welcome to Mindfulness Fridays with my amazing friend Jad Patrick. You can find more of him at Jad Patrick Naturopathy on Instagram. You're going to say your Facebook handle because I have no idea how to say it. Jad Patrick Natural Therapies. Have fun deciphering the two there. Um, but I always use Insta to get a hold of him. And the, I will be sharing this on Insta anyway. So I'm I'm pumped for this theme because it is so close to home for me and I have through years literally of therapy and um, different types of therapists like specific um, eating disorder therapists have had quite a a rocky road with this one. It's been probably a 10-year process for me. So the topic is body image and um, I know that it's a bomb, like it's a pretty heavy topic and umbrella. And so thank you for um, agreeing to talk to this topic. Um, first of all, let's just make note how common is people that have got eating disorders, body image problems, body dysmorphia, which is where you see yourself differently to how you really are, mm. um, emotional eating, all binge eating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um Firstly, I'd like to say I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on this topic and if you're struggling with these sorts of issues, it's so, so important to get qualified help. Absolutely. But I think it's it's a worthy discussion for sure. Um, eating disorder statistics and facts, luckily I just brought this up on the computer just before we started <laughs> You need to chatting. give that away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good with numbers. They don't come to me so it's, automatically. I reckon it'll be more than these stats. I reckon it's like more than one in two. Well, I mean, there's a difference between, say, um, having eating eating in a way that's problematic and driven by behaviours that are maybe unhealthy versus having a diagnosed eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a diagnosed eating disorder, like any mental health disorder, is when the disorder reaches a point that it's interfering with your quality of life, so your ability to maintain relationships, to engage in normal day-to-day activities, work, social events, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this big grey area between someone who's so sick they meet the criteria for an eating disorder mm-hmm. versus someone whose whose quality of life is still being impacted by disturbing thoughts about my you know my body should be this way or I've eaten too much or I need to go to the gym to burn off X amount of calories mm-hmm. or whatever. So one thing to really point out is anorexia nervosa, which is like literally you know starving yourself to death. So that's my history. Um, has one of the highest mortality rates of any mental illness. So people literally die from this and there is a high rate of suicide as well. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about some heavy stuff in this this episode. So, you know, be mindful of that if you're feeling a bit, you know, vulnerable or whatnot. Um, uh, Up to 0.5 to 3.7% of women will suffer from anorexia at some point in their lives and 1% of female adolescents have anorexia. So that's medically defined anorexia. And also... Uh, a lot of people probably go undiagnosed. Lots of people would go undiagnosed. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think important point to pick to to make mention of this is not universal across human populations. Mm. Ah. So it's it's not sort of like something that's kind of entirely sort of genetically driven or or just a, a thing that you know. One percent of women kind of go through, and and men. That's we should point that out as well. That mm. Some men do suffer from these eating disorders as well, and it's very underdiagnosed and underexplored mm. in the research. But in in cultures that don't put such an emphasis on thinness, 
Um, anorexia is far less common. Mm. So that's an important point to remember. We can treat this in a medical way. We can think about it in medical terms and diagnosis and treatment and, and whatever. But there is also a big sociological factor here that as a culture, and it's mostly through marketing products, we have come to a point where we are we're, we're marketing an image that is doesn't exist. Mm. You know, the I mean, image of women media. we see in, you know, in Instagram magazine covers, it's touched up, it's filtered, it is edited, and we all know this, but we're all still sort of seduced by it. Totally. Um, I mean, you know that there's like a movement with famous Instagram people that have had ribs removed to make their they're kind of like that that kind of like hourglass wow. bit more defined. Wow. So they've got this tiny weeny waist. Um, but, I mean, what impact is that going to have on your health far out? Yeah. So I guess. Um, kind of mind blown right now. So I guess. Mm, <laughs> well, <laughs> this is definitely not my area. No, no, but, I, but that's how full on it is, mm, you know, mm. for some people. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, social media has got a lot to. This comes from, I think, stems from a lot of social media, a lot of um, fame, the kind of like fame culture and the celebrity culture. And I also know um, working in media, I feel a sense of pressure mm. when I have a shoot or mm. um, a gig coming up. You'll see me, I'll come in and be like, I'm going to do cleanse today or, all right, you know, I've got a shoot in three weeks and, and, mm. and you'll be like, calm down, you look really healthy. Mm. What are you worried about? And But the I guess what I want to touch on um Today and it's it's what you've just spoken to already. But yes, my history is anorexia. I, I remember I was as low as forty-seven kilos, and I had a. It was to the point that my mum, who's a nurse, was like, "Take yourself to a hospital if this mm. goes any further." So I knew that it was at the point. Um, I remember I had an event at Crown Palladium in Melbourne where I had to walk up, I don't know, like fifty stairs, and it was like a huge like a big ball gown kind of event and I was going up the stairs and my my heart, I got pain in my heart mm. and I was like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, like something's wrong, got upstairs and because I felt like there was something wrong, I automatically just ate all the food that was in front of me because I was like something's wrong and I was completely mm. disconnected from myself mm. and I got home and my ankles had completely swollen to three times their size and mm. mum's like your kidneys are starting to shut down or react like and obviously I controlled everything I'd eaten except for that one experience mm. and that's what it was when she was like In, if you don't take yourself to hospital I will. Mm. How terrifying. So that's just so people can hear how um, I'm not just like saying yeah I controlled meeting for a week like that was probably went on for two or so years of dipping in and out of it, but being that kind of like really wanting to be that sub 50 kilos, like I know that people listening, girls that diet, you've kind of got this number in your head which doesn't correlate to your health, your muscle mass, mm. you know, um, at, at all. And, and also as a woman, like we fluctuate with holding fluid at different times mm. of the month. So mm. it's really not a marker yet it's still celebrated as a marker or used as a marker for where you're at weight-wise. Mm, mm. But the two topics I thought you might be interested in shedding some light on is so often I've, I've done a fair bit of research into eating disorders because, again, I'm selfish and I wanted to understand myself better and understand why I was doing it. So often it is linked to control, mm. which I think you just kind of touched on. And then when we – I imagine like the control is almost going to – seep into other topics we've got, like the stress and the anxiety. It's like this weird need for control that might come down to that like 
survival brain, that protection, and mm. it's this weird. So the two topics I want to talk to you about, it, one, control, and then the second thing is as I was coming out of my eating disorder, um, I binged a lot. Remember, I used to, mm. Jad and I worked together, he'd, I would fluctuate so much so quickly because I'd either be dieting extremely mm. or literally binge eating everything in sight and feeling so much shame around that. Mm. And I think that there's something in the addiction. And as that process was going on, so many people felt the need to continually comment on that as well, which is something that men don't experience in the world mm. as much, mm. that, that, that your body is open to criticism and commentary from every fucker that walks by you. And this is, this is a social justice issue as well as being a personal or medical issue is the fact that people think it's okay to cast judgment, assumptions, etc., about women's bodies all the time. Yeah. All the time. I'm so glad you said that. It's like those, um, you watch an interview with like a really powerful female actress and the interview will be like, oh, you did such a great role as Catwoman. How did you get in shape? Mm. And, and often the actress will turn around, like if they've done the work on themselves and they'll go, did you ask the male Mm. actor in this movie how he got in shape mm. Mm. because it's not fair if you're just asking me that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, you know, increasingly that's also becoming the case for, for male actors as well. You know, they want to be on the front of men's health just as much as women want to be on the front of, you know, all sorts of other magazines. So it's increasing in as a problem. But I think, you know, that pressure there cannot be ignored. That's the elephant constantly in the room. It's, as a culture we need to change if we're going to change how many young women are dying from these conditions. And if you think, if you, if you look the statistics, and I can't bring them up right mm. now, uh, the amount of women dying from eating-related disorders is often in excess of people dying from problems related to obesity. So our yeah. obsessive, the constant obsession with, with fatness in our, in our culture is a problem too, especially seeing as there's not really any solid evidence-based method to lose weight longer than about, you know, one to five years. 90% of people will gain the weight back and a proportion of those will gain more weight back and develop an eating disorder. So our, our recommendations also need to change. Now, whole thinking around the link between health and weight and wellness has, has got to be really critically examined by the medical profession as well as on a social level, advertising mm. level, all that sort of thing. It's, it's a big issue. Yeah, I can see why I can see why you feel like because this the, when you say it's not like really your forte. I get that because it is almost its own social issue. Mm. It's its own, um, it, 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 and it does have a like definitely does have a mental component. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I thought the addiction side would be mm. interesting because I know once I've made the choice to binge or mm. to go off the rails, I'm saying in inverted commas. I know that. From the moment that that choice has been made in my mind, I can't tell you how I've got in my car, driven to Coles or Woolworths, mm. bought all the marvellous creation and all my favourite like Cadbury cream eggs, Jad knows I love Cadbury <laughs> cream eggs, and all my favourite um, chocolates and I won't just get one, I'll get five and sat in the car and had them faster than I could taste them. Mm. So that to me is an addictive behaviour as opposed to, and I just thought if you can speak a bit to like, to me, an addiction is almost what you were calling like, is it, did you call it like mindlessness? Like mind, not mindfulness, whatever the opposite of mindfulness was. 
Mindlessness, I was referring, but yeah, more to the wandering kind of mind. Yeah. And I guess an addiction can feel like your mind has been hijacked or your behavior has been totally. hijacked. And I guess in, in all of these sorts of issues, addiction or binge eating or um, eating avoidance, which is anorexia, often we're trying to avoid an experience, an internal experience. And that normally comes down to some sort of feeling or thought. And the feeling might, or the thought might be, if I, if I don't do this, then I'm going to get fat. And if we unpack that fat, what does fat mean? And that's the thing, you know, a lot of people can start with is what does that mean to you? What what does being fat mean to you? What does the pull of gravity have to do with your concept of self? And for a lot of people that means they're not good enough. It will speak to some kind of core belief about themselves. That if I am this, then I am not good enough. See, my mantra for years was skinny equals success. Mm. So to me that comes more back to the social yes. image of the what's being kind of like indoctrinated within mm. us mm. of all these women are super successful and skinny. And that was my kind of mantra of like when I'm under 50 kilos, I'm going to be on the front cover of Women's Health or when I'm under 50 kilos, I'm going to date this guy that I've got a crush on. Mm. And the way that you uh, touched on before about how um, it can Im- impact the, your living and your life, mm. I wouldn't date people because I was like, I can't go out to that restaurant because I know I can't get mm. uh, and I can't know, I can't get what I want to eat and I can't understand that I can't know the calories that are in that food. Yes. And so I wouldn't even do it. I wouldn't even date because I was so petrified of being out of control, mm. which brings me to my next question is like how much of this is is a control game? Yeah, I think, you know, control is a big part of it and there are plenty of people as well who have eating disorders that aren't related necessarily to body ideals, but that it is just this control thing. And if you think about one of the earliest things we can kind of control as kids is is what goes in our mouths. We don't have mm. much control. So, you know, from a sort of my analytic kind of perspective, some of it comes back to that sort of primal base kind of stuff that mm. we have some sense of control over. So if our life is out of control and, you know, a lot of life is left in the lap of the gods, so to speak, then at least I can, can control this. And there's there's research on, you know, on stress management that, that's called sort of it's quite paradoxical if, the, if, if we feel... When stress is, has a negative impact on us, it's when we perceive we're out of control of a situation or we don't have the resources to meet the needs of the demands of the situation. And paradoxically, if that's happening and you find something else to focus on that you are in control of and that you do have a sense of agency over, that can reduce the impact of stress in your life. So that's a functional way mm. of addressing the stress response. Where it becomes dysfunctional is um, say you've got a background of trauma in your life Say you're facing difficulties in a relationship and work and where am I going? Um, that's all stressing me out. I have no control over that. I'm overwhelmed by it. Unconsciously we turn to something then that we can feel a sense of control from and that gives us a little ping of dopamine like I'm doing something. So if we can control our eating, if we control our mm. exercise, if we can um, calculate our calories, it gives us this artificial sense of I'm in charge here mm. and I've got, the, I've got this sort of covered but it's masking the background discomfort with the fact that there's things in life beyond our control. And that's where things can get kind of existential in the sense that in life there is a balance between things within our power and things outside of our power and maturing into understanding that some things are outside of our control. We can control the inputs into a situation. We can't necessarily control the outputs. Mm. And, you know, and eating and body image comes into that as well. You know, you can focus on the healthy behaviour and not get so hung up on the on the outcome. 
So cool. So fascinating. And I think what you said at the very start about it being a sense of like, or you were like leaning towards like it being a sense of like you're enough and your your worthiness. And for me that that was a turning point from because when you do, when it's common when you come out of an eating disorder that you then overeat because you feel really guilty that you're like, oh, I've fucked it now, start again tomorrow, I'll die mm. tomorrow. And when I got clear on like my self-worth, mm. I was really comfortable going to a brekkie date and, and ordering off the menu, like ordering mm. what, what I knew I wanted to have that felt mm. healthy. Like you and I went to breakfast last week. You got like greens. I got a detox bowl. Mm. Do you know? And we kind of celebrated a healthy meal together. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, because I would be like, oh, I've got to go to this breakfast and I'd obsess over it, I'd mm. be like, oh, they're going to think like they and, – and it's that I would always feel like I was getting judged on what I was eating. And I was like, oh, just you've got no control, just have whatever's in front of you and have it all and and then I'd kind of like spiral from there. But having worked on – and through therapy, mm. having worked on a sense of self-worth, mm. I'll now go to Brecky and be like, oh, this is what feels right for me today. And I eat mm, a bit more mm, like intuitively and for nourishment. Mm. And and I'm not really afraid. And I, I used to say this to clients when I practiced all the time, um, own it, mm. own who you are. Cause it actually reactivates your, I think a sense of agency. And yeah, and, and yeah that's, that's an important part of it. I think as well as having at least that perception of like of control is a big part of it. So broadening your horizons and understanding where you have control and influence and not getting so hung up on the minute details of things like calories, et cetera. And what I'm I also I'm probably saying in quite of a roundabout way, but also like the flip side of being super controlled and mm. then coming out of eating disorder is almost like relinquishing control. Yeah. And I think it's finding that happy medium between the two where you're like, I know who I am. Like I had a business meeting yesterday and um, some days I like to intermittent fast till midday on coffee mm. and most people laugh at me when I say that but I like it. It feels good for me because I like to exercise in the morning as well. And I had a business meeting and, and it was a breakfast meeting and I was like, oh, no, nah, I intermittent fast today. And they were like, cool, no worries. And rewind a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do that to have the self-worth to go this is what's going to serve me and nourish me most in this moment. Yes, yeah. And I think, you know, and that's a big part of it is is wanting what's best for yourself in the long term and sometimes that can be hard if we hate ourselves and a lot of people go through life hating themselves. So one of the little things you can do is sort of think about the way you're relating to food. Would I want this sort of behaviour for my daughter? Mm. Do I want my daughter to have that sort of life? And if no, then maybe there's some questions around whether that's good for you. Would someone who really cares about me want this for me? Mm. What's this all in aid of? If I reach size whatever... How does my behaviour change then? What do I do differently then? Is anything really stopping me now from doing that right now apart from difficult feelings, difficult feelings that I'm not good enough, that I'm too fat, that this is bulging out, that this is too hairy, that this is too pointy, that this is too bony, whatever. Think about what is it I want to be doing with my life? What is the sort of person I want to be? And does does thinness actually relate to that at all? And if we start to sort of shift the focus on what's important, what's Mm. valuable, what's meaningful... It can take some of the power out of that. Totally. And that's kind of what I was getting at when Mm. I was like when I'm sitting in a cafe and in a meeting that would usually be highly triggering for me Mm. and if I'm in this space of I'm on my path and I love who I am and where I am and I'm honouring who I am and where I am, then I find it very easy to navigate because I know I'm coming from like this bigger picture as opposed to being caught up in 
uh, what if what if they think that about me mm. or the rumination that we were kind of talking mm. about? Mm. Um, it's it's still, and this is one thing to, for people to know. Two things I wanted to mention about eating disorder stuff. You and Jad's already said you need a therapist or you need someone that is a professional to help you through this. I worked with someone that specialised in eating disorders and it didn't work for me. Mm. Uh, I then worked with someone that didn't specifically, I didn't find out until much later in our healing journey that he did specialise in weight loss and eating dis- disordered eating. Mm. He didn't tell me that till about a year in. Mm. And that's who I work with now uh, with all of my, and, and some days I'll walk in for a therapy session, I'm like, I've got to talk about food because I was triggered this time, this time, this time. And some days I'll have a really shitty day and I'll eat way too much and I'll feel like I've binged even though I haven't to the capacity that I would have like five years ago. Mm. So the first thing is definitely see help. Mm. And you know within yourself if you are struggling with this. And I know the percentage would be so high and I'm not talking about anorexia here, Mm. I'm talking about disordered behaviour around food and Mm. negative self-talk around body image Mm. and body dysmorphia. Mm. Uh, And so I know that... Um, I know that it is so, so, so common. I know that it is one of the most common things that I get DMs and Instagrams and mm. questions about and that's why I'm passionate about speaking to this. Get help. Get yeah. a therapist. And then all of this mindful work will mm. be a really great tool that you have in your toolkit to kind of like further and kind of I think the two work in synergy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a good point. You know, the, the real work needs to happen with sort of a therapist, but mindfulness, a lot of this is about control and a lot of it's about avoiding difficult feelings. Mm. And mindfulness is about encountering difficult th- feelings in a, in a gentle kind of way where we explore them with curiosity so we stop engaging in those automatic habits and behaviours. That, that, the gap between stimulus and response, that space is where we choose our response, as I said in the last episode, and that's where growth and freedom lies. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, and it's mm. allowing that bit of space between things that will help people to, to heal and to be able to tolerate some of those difficult feelings that come up around the body and self-worth and, and all of that. And like you said when we spoke earlier, in, I think it was in the introduction, you were like, be curious. Yeah. And I think rather than hating on that feeling of like, oh, I really want to have a chocolate bar, if I can increase or if anyone can increase that space, mm. why am I feeling that? Mm. What, what am I avoiding? Mm. What don't I want to feel? Mm. What what am I ashamed of? You know, there's often mm. for me it's the link between body Shame's image is change. Yeah. And, and being open and like you said, the way you were saying in the episode before this, Jad spoke to anxiety and like having a cup of tea with your anxiety, like sit down with that feeling of like if you're feeling shameful, what is that, why? Why is this happening mm. right now? Mm. And I think that that curiosity around it as opposed to this is de- this is defined. Like I remember the first therapist I saw for body image stuff was like just go for a walk. Do something different. Mm. And I get it. She was trying to make me change the channel and I was like, it's not that simple. Mm. And I kept going, you don't get it. Like it's not Mm. once that choice is made and things like simple things like keep me a diet diary. I was like, do you understand how triggering that is for me? Because Mm. a diet diary is almost like further enforcing this control. The control aspect of it. And I think, you know, it's. It sounds like in that instance the, the therapist didn't work for you or perhaps their tactics mm. weren't sort of working for you. And I want to emphasise that for a lot of people that won't be the case that there are eating disorder specialists that 
I would hope wouldn't be necessarily getting people to keep a food diet, except if it was in the, in the instance where they really kind of track, is this person at risk of death? Let, let's get that clear that some people die from this condition, from anorexia nervosa. So um, and I also, don't be scared of seeking yeah, treatment. And, and also like I always say, and I think you say the same thing, you, you spend four sessions with a new therapist and that may or may not be the right fit and you're going to know. Yeah, I sort of that's that's kind of a general sort of rule I okay. sort of tell my clients. I'm like, you know, your resistances all come up in those first few sessions. They'll come up for the rest of your therapy mm-hmm. life, the therapeutic relationship with a person. But I'd sort of say give it kind of four sessions because a lot of people again have this mistaken assumption like meditation that you're going to come out the end feeling better after that first session. No, you'll probably oh. feel <laughs> a lot worse. Yeah. And it's I, I liken and it to seeing continues. a personal trainer. You know, you're going to come out a bit sore and a bit stiff and a bit sweaty and, and feeling a bit awkward and like you're not sure what you're doing. And it's the same when we start to unpack our emotional stuff and our our thinking patterns and everything. We come into contact with some difficult areas and that and it's and it's tricky. But that's where we really make big changes in our lives. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to this. I know it's a big, big topic. And I think the overarching message for you that you've shared is it's a serious topic mm. and it needs to be dealt with professionally, uh, which I find very empowering because that's obviously what I'm super passionate about. I'm very passionate about saying see a therapist or get the help that you need because just like how you mentioned about um, that first few times you can feel really yuck, mm. just an FYI. I'm two and a half years in with the same therapist. I can have that feeling. Yeah. I can have really great sessions where I'm like, oh, yes, I'm clear, I'm on track. Mm. And I can have other um, sessions. Like the other day I walked out and he goes, you're doing the work. And I was Mm. like, I said to him for the first time, I can feel like I'm doing the work from my heart, not my head. Yeah, that's interesting. Which was a huge Mm. shift for me and it actually felt like I was more, because I'm an analytical overthinker, I actually felt like a more whole person because I wasn't stuck in kind of like what we've touched on before, control. Mm. The addiction to kind of like being the boss Mm. and and overthinking Mm. and I really started to Mm. go with it. So I look, what I'm trying to say is, I agree with Jad, see a therapist, know that some sessions are going to be great, some sessions are going to be feel shitty, but there's probably great growth going on there. Absolutely. Jad's going to do a um, mindfulness exercise or meditation around this topic. Yeah, sort of around encountering difficult feelings and acknowledging that they're there and reminding ourselves we're not alone in experiencing that and then having some compassion towards the fact that, that, that life involves difficulty, that life involves suffering. So changing our relationship to that automatic kind of response we have when we get a ugh kind of emotion showing yeah. up. Oh, so cool. Thank mm. you for being here. I'm so pumped. My so, pleasure. So You're j- welcome. So just so people know, this is the Body Image episode. Subscribe if you don't want to miss the ones coming up. Uh, the next one is about grief and heartbreak and the one before this was stress and anxiety. So like we said at the intro, you can go back and listen to any of these episodes mm. as often Um as you need, like I know um, my boyfriend likes to meditate morning and night and these these tools that you're giving us, they can be done a couple of times a day if we felt that we need them. Mm. Awesome. Mm. Yeah, so guys, you've got all the tools now. <laughs> all right, big love. Thank you, Jad. Thanks, everyone. This meditation is called the Mindful Self-Compassion Break and it's a meditation you can use 
Whenever you're experiencing some sort of difficulty in life, and you can break it down into a very small exercise or uh, turn it into a longer exercise. So beginning by thinking of a situation in your life that's difficult at the moment and causing you some stress. Enough stress that you can feel it in your body as you think about it, but not that's so overwhelming that you might feel traumatized or overwhelmed. So calling the situation to mind, see if you can actually feel the stress and emotional discomfort in your body, you get a sense of it in your body. If you can't get a sense of the discomfort, perhaps thinking of a situation that's a little bit more difficult perhaps. So feeling that difficulty, noticing that difficulty and how it feels in your body. Now using a soft, soothing, supportive, internal voice, I want you to gently label this difficulty. This is a moment of suffering. This is a moment of suffering. So that's mindfulness, drawing our attention to the difficulty and labeling it for what it is. Right now in this moment, this feels difficult. Or, ouch, right now in this moment, this hurts. Or, ah, I notice that this is stressful for me right now. So turning towards our discomfort and labelling it as such, being honest with ourselves that this, this moment is difficult. Feeling wherever you feel it in your body, making room for that difficulty, not fighting it, not dwelling on it, but noticing that it really is there. That's mindfulness. Then we're going to bring the second part of self-compassion into this exercise. Common humanity, a sense of connectedness to all humans. Turning towards our discomfort and gently and non-judgmentally saying to ourselves, ah, well, suffering is a part of life. Suffering is a part of life at times. You're not alone in feeling this way. There are times in life that we all struggle, that we all experience difficulty. I'm connected to others both in joyful times and in the times that I struggle. I share these feelings with millions of other humans that have lived this earth. Other words that might work for you could be just like me, others struggle with this pain at times. Or, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in feeling this way. Again, acknowledging that we all struggle in our lives, that all of us experience pain and discomfort at times and joy and happiness. Now placing your hand over your heart or any other spot on your body that feels sort of soothing or supportive. Noticing the warmth of your hands and the gentle pressure of your hands on your chest or any other spot that feels right for you. 
Now imagining someone in your life who you care about greatly, who is experiencing a suffering similar to yours, perhaps the same, and just thinking about how you might respond to their suffering. What, what words might you say to them? What language might you use to let them know that you're there for them, to validate their experience, to encourage them, to soothe them, to motivate them? What tone of voice would you use if you saw them suffering in such a way? What physical gestures might you offer them, like a hug or a squeeze of the hand? What might your body language be like in relationship to them? Seeing if you can feel that sense of compassion towards their suffering growing within you, that desire to help them in some way. Noticing that hand on your heart again or other soft supportive spot. Imagining now someone who cares about you greatly. And this person wants what's best for you. They can see that you're suffering. They can see that you're struggling. And in this moment of suffering, what words might they offer you? to validate your pain, to support you, nurture you, soothe you, protect you, encourage you. What tone of voice might they use? Seeing if you can feel the tone in their voice of care and compassion and kindness. What physical gestures or body language would they offer to show you that they care, that they lean in, they place a hand on your shoulder, feeling again that sense of compassion welling up in your body. Turning inwards now towards yourself again, noticing that discomfort, that suffering, seeing if you can find a soft, soothing, internal, supportive and voice and see if you can say something like this to yourself. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I be kind to myself in this moment. You can also ask yourself, what do I need to hear right now to express kindness to myself? Is there some sort of phrase or language or set of words that might meet your needs in this particular situation? And seeing if you can softly and calmly experiment with saying those words to yourself, offering yourself the same kindness and care in language that you would to another person you care about. May I give myself the kindness that I need. 
May I learn to accept myself just as I am. May I have compassion for my own pain as I do for others. May I be strong and resilient and grow from this experience. May I be patient. Noticing again the supportive touch of your hand on your heart or any other soothing spot. Noticing the warmth and gentle pressure as a physical sign of kindness and care towards yourself. Feeling the good intention behind this. This might be difficult for some of you. This might be a new feeling. The fact that you're sitting here listening to this shows that there's a part of you that wants what's best for you, that cares for you already. In this meditation, we're developing that part of you, the compassionate self. You can practice this at any time. It can be done as a lengthy meditation practice where you really spend time experiencing each stage of mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. Or it can be done very quickly in the moment, placing your hand on the heart and saying to yourself genuinely, ah, this is a moment of suffering. But I'm not alone. Others suffer just like me in this life. May I be kind to myself right now. Making room for any difficult feelings that are still there and savouring any positive experiences that you might have had in this exercise. Letting go of the meditation now and when you're ready, gently opening your eyes.